Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. For this we know that the last hour is come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved they didn't belong with us. But you are not like that. For the Holy One has given you His Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you, because you don't, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an Antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So, you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. If you do, you'll remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Thanks, Joel. <clears throat> well, good morning. Good to see you. Did you get a word? I did. Mine was hope. As soon as Lynn prayed that, it was there. And it was made because I was thinking about the song that we were singing earlier, Cornerstone, which is a sort of a remake of an older hymn, but it talked about my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So I have a hope that of eternal life. I have a hope of knowing God. And uh, I'm excited to just live into that this year. So thank you, Lynn, for doing that. Well, this morning, we are continuing our studies in 1 John. We've called this series Transforming Love. We have had uh, seven messages so far. Six of them have actually been before Christmas. And then last week, Corey Anderson brought us back into 1 John from chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And so today, this message is kind of the midpoint in this series. Because we've had seven, and there are seven that will be after today, that will take us right to the end of chapter 5. Next week, Kyer Hammer will, uh, will speak, and then he'll pass the baton back to me, and then the following week I'll pass it on to Sid Page, and then uh, probably back to me, and then Pastor Ken will be uh, back as well. We'll find ourselves sometime in mid-February, and uh, the days will be longer and we can think that we're almost through the, uh, the winter. <clears throat> Have you noticed how the days are already getting a little bit longer? I love that. We're almost, uh, almost a month past the longest day. But uh, anyways, um, this isn't a thing about daylight or whatever else. I just, <laughs> just went off on a tangent. Um, anyways, uh, it, it felt a little strange this week for me to kind of launch back into studying uh, this letter, 
because I actually started this series back on October 20th and then haven't uh, been in the rotation on this particular uh, study since. And um, so to sort of fall back into the middle of the letter and try to orient myself again around the context was a bit challenging. But it just struck me again as I read through the letter beginning to end a few times just to kind of grasp again all of what John was writing that this is a great letter. But it's a challenging letter. A great letter, but challenging. It's challenging theologically and practically. And I hope that you're learning lots. I know that I am. Because in over 20 years of ministry now, I have never done a study in First John. And so it can be hard work to kind of dig where you haven't dug before, but it's all good. God wants us to study his word, learn from it, and have it impact the way in which we live. And so we're going to look at these verses that Joel read for us in John chapter two, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. These are the verses that we're going to unpack. They've been read for us, and I hope that you have your Bibles and you can follow along a little bit as well. Because we've already said that John is writing so that the Christians, they could be certain in an uncertain world. That they could have assurance. That that when it comes to being sure that they were in fact Christians, there were three tests that John gave in this particular letter. These tests would challenge presumption. They don't just assume that we can declare that we're a Christian without maybe going through some specific tests to examine ourselves where we're at. And so he uses these three tests at different times throughout this letter, and he comes back to them in in several different ways. We've already looked at some of them. But the first is the moral test. It's It's the test of true obedience, where we understand that to be a Christian is, in fact, to do the right thing. It's about following God's commands. It means not saying one thing on Sunday and then living 180 degrees in contrast to that throughout the rest of the week. And so that the desire and longing of our hearts is to be obedient to God. That's the first test. The second is the social test, or this is the test of true love. And this is where we question about our love for others. Where we, we, we simply can't say that we love and follow God, but then we don't love others as well. This means that I really love others, maybe even the ones that I don't really like. Right? Have you ever come across that? For me, you know, you may not like me, but you do have to love me. So just, just to be aware about that. Thirdly is the theological test. Okay? This is the test then of true belief. Do I believe the truth about Jesus? Do I believe what is true and do I truly believe it? And it's this third test, this theological test that we're going to be uh, dealing with today. What do I or what do we believe about Jesus? And this is kind of a big deal. I mean, John certainly thought so, he, he, because as he's getting into these verses now, he really seems to write with a sense of urgency and with passion. You see, God's, or sorry, John's love and passion for his readers is again obvious when he writes, Dear children. And he just sort of comes back to that phrase a few times, Dear children. 
remember what we've been referring to uh, from time to time in the studies, that John was already elderly, and we can kind of look at him as kind of like Grandpa John, and that he's writing to people uh, that, that he cares for and is concerned about very passionately. He's concerned for their spiritual health. And so he writes them this letter to warn them and assure them and help them stay on track. There's also a tone of urgency in his writing. He uses the phrase, this is the last hour. And any time a writer uses the phrases last hour or last days or last times, you can be sure that it's not just about stating a fact, but it's really about sounding an alarm. It's like he's saying, listen up. This is important. You don't want to miss this. Because it's important. It's vital. And so the last hour that John writes about here refers to the age of time that we've been living in since the time of Jesus. This new age started with his death and resurrection, and it will ultimately end with his second coming. Friends, Jesus is coming back. And so when someone says, we're living in the last days, you can say, yes, yes, in fact, yes, we are. And Jesus could return any time. But knowing that, knowing that Jesus could come back anytime, creates an awareness. Because since we're in the last hour and Jesus could could come soon, we then should be ready. We, We should be on our toes. We should stay on mission. We should remain focused and live every day like it might be our last. It's like when Tina would go and visit her mom and her family in Cleveland. She would do this a couple of times a year where she would go on her own and typically leave me and the children behind. And when she's gone, now, please don't tell her this, she's not here. But when she's gone, I don't make the bed. There's often clothes on the floor in my closet. The hampers start to overflow until the kids start coming to me, uh, begging me for wondering when I might do some laundry so they have something clean to wear. The sink starts to overflow with dishes a little bit, and, and um, I don't always straighten the cushions on the couch, and I don't always put the toaster away. Why? Because I know when she's coming back. Right? I know her flight information. I know that I'll probably be the one picking her up from the airport. And so usually a day or two before the day, I, well, I get busy. I start to clean. I start doing laundry. And then on the day of her return, I make the bed. <laughs> and why do I do this? Well, maybe because I want to impress her. I'm thinking of her. I don't want her to feel responsible for coming home and doing all this cleaning and starting the laundry. In fact, I think I kind of want her to think like it was like that all the time. (laughs) But my question is this, and some of you have found yourself in those same situations, haven't you? Would I do things differently if I knew that she could come home any day or any time? That she might just surprise me and catch a flight a couple days earlier and 
and, and maybe take a taxi and, and show up at home completely unexpectedly. If I knew that was possible, I probably would do things differently. And friends, listen. John here and other writers in the Bible, they want us to be ready. Ready all the time. And they want us to live with a certain urgency in our lives, with passion and with purpose. Why? Because Jesus could return any time. Uh, it's maybe more than what I needed to say about this one little phrase, but, but as I thought about this, it was just something that I sensed God was really impressing on my heart, that we should never take for granted that we're going to live forever. We should never take for granted that as we sung, there might be just suddenly there's this trumpet call, and things are going to change instantly. And we never know when that might happen. So shouldn't we live differently? I know how easy it is to to sort of get a little bit lazy, to become a little bit complacent, to let my guard down, to stop talking to people about Jesus, to, to stop passionately following him in some ways. Somehow we probably think that, well, it's been 2,000 years since John wrote that it was the last hour then. I mean, it must, maybe it's another 2,000 years again, and maybe it doesn't really matter how I live. But it does. And John here is warning his readers, he's warning us, he's trying to equip us, he's, he's trying to help us to be ready, to be prepared. And so he starts to highlight here this conflict between truth and error, truth and lies, he says. And his whole objective is to determine what is true and what is false. And he does so by contrasting two groups of people. And I struggle with a little bit this, this thought, but it just seemed to kind of lay out for me when I thought about this passage that really there's a bit of an emphasis here on what I'll call us and them. Okay, so let me explain those two, and you'll see what I mean. Let's start first with them. Now, them is in contrast to his dear children. Because John introduces us to, he uses the phrase, the Antichrist. Now, whatever you've been told, or whatever you haven't heard about the Antichrist, I mean, there is a bit of a, ooh, that sounds a little ominous. That, that, that. That's maybe a little scary. It makes me a little uncomfortable. And this term, Antichrist, is in fact only used by John, and he uses it here in verse 18, and he uses it again in verse 22, and then again in chapter 4 and verse 3, and then in his second letter in verse 7. And when we read this term here, it's in fact the first use of the term in the, in the New Testament, but the concept is found in other places of the Bible as well. It's probably a good idea just for us to define this a little more because I, I think it can mean one of three things. The Antichrist is, first of all, a spirit in the world who opposes or denies Christ. It's an adversary of Christ. It comes actually from a compound word where anti means against or instead of. The, the second definition is that the, these are actually a term used for the false teachers then who embody this spirit. The false teachers who are those who are opposing or denying Christ. And he uses that term to, de to define them as well. 
And in 2 John chapter 7, when he uses this phrase, Antichrist, we read that it is anyone who does not, quote, acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And thirdly, this is a person who will head up the final world rebellion against Christ. Now, now I'm not going to sit here and speculate about who this is or who it might be or whatever, because you know what? Many people have done so in the past, and they've been wrong. And maybe you've even gone to Christian bookstore during significant world events. I, I remember, I think it was in you know, uh, the Gulf War during 1991. Oh yeah, absolutely, there it is. Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. Well, it wasn't true. And so every time we speculate about someone who it is, it just makes us as Christians look a little silly, right? Because we label somebody with something and then, oh, well, it actually wasn't true. And so we're not going to go down that, that, down that road. But it's important to know what the Bible teaches that there is and will be an antichrist. And as John says, man, many antichrists, plural, have actually already come. Why does he say that? Well, probably then it's the best definition for us to use is that the one that John himself wrote, and he used this in verse 22. He says that the Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Hey, that's pretty clear, right? We don't need to kind of get all freaked out about the word. It's just an Antichrist is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. They're against him. And further on in John, he uses another term for these people who deny that Jesus is the Christ. It's also not a very complimentary term. Liar. You're a liar. And he doesn't mess around. He gets very direct and to the point. So, you deny that Jesus came in the flesh? Liar. Liar. That is not true. And he says that they denied the Father and the Son. And so not only did they deny that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh, they taught that Jesus was born and he died a man and that he wasn't the Son of God. In other words, they denied the entire incarnation. They denied Christmas. They denied the essence of Christmas. The whole, the whole truth that God stepped out of heaven and took on human flesh. I like how Pastor Ken, I think it was on Christmas Eve, just used that term. He tabernacled amongst us. He, he pitched his tent. He came and lived among us. But these antichrists, these liars, they denied that God had become human and was fully flesh while remaining fully God. And so them, if you will, are the antichrists and the liars. But I want you to know it's just not just who they were, but what they did. They did two things, at least. One is we know that they, they left. They once were part of this group that gathered. They were once a part of this church, but they left. And John says that they went out from us. 
And if they went out from us, they must have at some point been with us. And so John basically says that their leaving confirmed that they were not truly of us in the first place. In other words, they didn't have a genuine saving faith. And so by leaving, they have given evidence of their faith and of their character. And now here's a theological truth to try to wrap our minds around this morning. People who are truly saved will never abandon Jesus. They won't abandon Jesus because they will be kept, they will belong, they will remain by the grace of God alone. Jude 24, and I often use this verse as a benediction, says this, to him who is able to keep you from falling, to him who is able to keep you from falling, falling away, and to that person, not just to keep you from falling away, he says, but to present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy. Without fault and with great joy. Listen, I love that. Like we sang this morning about faultless to stand before the throne. What were we singing there was Jude 24, in essence. Because what it's saying is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come not on our own merits. We come not with our own righteousness. It's not because we've done enough good things. We come before God on that day and we stand there only because of the righteousness of Jesus that was given to us. And it's Jesus who can present us without fault and he keeps us from falling away. And he comes before God with great joy. It it reminded me of like a, a proud parent who would just go... Let me introduce you to my son, Norm. He put his faith in me as a young child. Stumbled and bumbled along in life at times. But I kept him for you. I kept him. I hung on to him. He wasn't going to leave. Because he belonged to me. And so I'm faultless before God. Not because I was without fault, but because of Jesus. Now, there's so much more, but hopefully you can sort of chew on that a little bit. Because John makes a clear distinction between those who have left and those who remain. Verse 19, he says, They went out from us, But they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. In other words, if you really belong, you stay. You don't leave. And this isn't referring to leaving one church and maybe going to another church. And there's many reasons and good reasons for that and sometimes not so good reasons. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of his family. We're his children. 
God's our Father. And nothing is ever going to change that. Now, yeah, there might be times where we go through some really rocky times in our lives. But we're not going to fall away. Because the grace of God is going to keep us. But notice this. These liars, these deceivers, this group of false teachers, they didn't even come from outside the church and attack the church. This was a group that was already on the inside. They probably were people who just kind of thought that they were improving Christianity a little bit. And at first it might have been subtle, but eventually John and probably others got wind of what they were teaching and they were told, listen, hey, that's not what we believe around here. We do believe that Jesus is the Christ. We do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you don't believe that, liar. (laughs) Maybe they got tired of hearing that. And they left. Secondly, they did leave, but they also were trying to lead others astray. And maybe they were successful in taking some unsuspecting or naive young Christians with them. And this is what what, what has really raised the ire of John here. He saw this. He probably heard that this was happening. And and, and it's really the issue that prompted him to write the letter in the first place. In fact, that's what he says in verse 26. He says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now you might be wondering, does this kind of thing still happen in churches today? And I wish I could tell you some stories because you know what? Yes. Yes, it does happen, sadly. But I don't feel like I can really tell you a whole much for a bunch of reasons. One is time, because we could spend the afternoon together. And secondly, I've only served in in two churches. And I don't think that the statute of limitations has expired yet. and And I don't feel right telling you stories about something or someone. And then someone listens to the sermon online and go, Wait a minute. He's talking about me. And so I can't really do that. But I've experienced it. And it can be devastating. And often false teaching isn't around big issues like Jesus being the Son of God who came in the flesh as it was here. Oftentimes it's smaller issues. But they can still have devastating effects. And so like John is warning his congregation, we too need to stay vigilant. And so that's them. Antichrists and liars who left and were leading others astray. But what about us? So in contrast to them, I think John also talks about us. And I have another phrase I want to use this morning for us. It's the title of the sermon, The Fellowship of the Truth. And what does John have to say about this group? John uses three words repeatedly, and I'm going to organize my thoughts around them. There's probably other ways of of attacking this, but this is what kind of came to me. The first word is belong. I've already kind of touched on this in the sense that there were those that didn't stay, they left, they didn't belong. And, and, And so he uses other words, and some translations pick up on this, and maybe you're reading about remaining or abiding or continuing. Remember how John refers to them as dear children? And so he's identified them as those who belong to the family of God. And that God is the father of these children. And being part of God's family brings with it a sense of belonging. 
The Bible talks about believers belonging to one another. And since they belong to the same family, they they care for one another, they pray for one another, they share with one another. So they belong to this community of faith. They love one another. And if you really belong, you stay. Because remember what happened to the other group. They left, showing that they never belonged in the first place. But there's another word. It's an important one too. He uses the word anointed. Anointed. He says in verse 20 that we have an anointing from the Holy One. That anointing is the Holy Spirit. You see, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, when he receives him as, as their personal Lord and Master, they then also receive the Holy Spirit. This is the anointing that John is also talking about in verse 27 when he says, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. It remains in you. The gift of the Spirit is the same for everyone. Some don't get more of the Holy Spirit and others less. The Holy Spirit comes and, in essence, lives within us. Uh, uh, Are you with me? God in us. We never leave His presence. We can talk about all sorts of other things about being the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God indwells us through the Holy Spirit. And John uses the the phrase anointing, or they're anointed. It remains in you. And Jesus in John 14, verse 16, promised that this Holy Spirit given would remain forever. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. You see, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. And so the Holy Spirit then leads us into all truth. He provides the resources so that we might discern right from wrong or truth from error. It is the Holy Spirit within us that teaches us the Word of God. And then we know the truth. This is the biblical doctrine of illumination. I've always liked that word because sometimes theological or words can be these big words, right? But illumination, I always had this picture of my mind of, ah, the light bulb went on. I got it. How did I get it? Because the Holy Spirit illuminated my understanding and I came to understand what the Word was about. And then the Holy Spirit enables us to understand it and apply it to our lives. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. The Holy Spirit equips and provides spiritual gifts and so, yes, there are some that have a, a, an extra special ability of discernment or wisdom or knowledge. But it's all about teaching the truth. Warren Wearsby writes about a, a missionary to the American Indians who was in Los Angeles with, with an Indian friend who was just a new Christian. And, and, and as they were walking down the street, they passed a man on the corner who was preaching with a Bible in his hand. Now, this missionary knew instantly, probably based on what he heard or what he knew, that this this person didn't actually represent Christianity. He represented a cult. But this new Christian, this Indian, only saw the Bible, and so he, he stopped to listen to the sermon. And the missionary is off to the side, and he's thinking, he goes, man, I, I hope my friend doesn't get confused. And he began to pray. And then in a few minutes, this 
friend of his who had just become a believer turned away from the preacher and came and joined him. And so the missionary asks him, he says, well, what did you think of the preacher? He says, you know, all the time he was talking, something in my heart just kept saying, liar, liar. That something in his heart was someone, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, guides us into truth and helps us to recognize error. And so one of the things we always have to do whenever we study God's Word, when you wake up in the morning, before you even read the Bible, pray and ask the Holy Spirit, teach me. Reveal your truth to me. Speak, Lord, as uh, Samuel, I think, said. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's how we got to approach the word. Speak, Lord, for we're listening. And the last word is this. Just know. They belong, they're anointed, and they know. Believers know the truth. They're loyal to the truth. And in verse 21, John makes it clear that those in the fellowship of the truth know the truth and that he is writing not to somehow inform them of some new truth now, but to confirm for them the truth that they already know. This isn't something that they believe just in their heads. This is an, an, an acknowledging the truth about Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12 says this, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. We have to acknowledge that. And this is what sets Christian apart from all of the other world religions. They all refuse to confess that Jesus is God's son, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we simply can't say that we believe in God and then not believe that Jesus is God, is God's son. John also reminds them of the importance of what they heard. He says in verse 24, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. You see, John is referring to the original and authentic message of God, of Christ's death for sin and his victory over death. And you see, friends, this is really, really important because what we believe about Jesus isn't optional. Jesus, the Son of God, he really came in the flesh. And he lived, and he died for our sin, and he rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and he's going to come back again. And to not believe that is to strip Christianity of the most essential doctrine. But then, to those who do believe, we're given this incredible promise. And it's so easy to just say, oh yeah, eternal life. Think about that. Because of Christ paying the penalty for our sin, and the penalty was death, we now have this gift of eternal life. And it's something that John says that we can be absolutely certain of. We can know. 
you can leave here today with absolute certainty in your heart, in your spirit that says, I know that I'm a child of God and I will spend eternity with him. I don't understand all that. I don't understand what it's going to look like. But I do know this. Someone else has already paid the price. And so faultless I can stand before God. John writes in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. That means that when we put our head down at our pillow at night, we can have tremendous peace, assurance, joy. We get up in the morning. This is a good day. By God's grace, he's given me breath and life. I'm going to live it to the full. I'm going to enjoy all the gifts that he's given me because I know that eternal life is mine. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he is the son of God. And so I'm just going to close with this hopefully obvious question. Are you in the fellowship of the truth? I'm not asking if you attend this church or any church regularly. I'm not asking if you've made this a home, your home church or if you're a member. I'm just asking you, do you belong to God's family? And there's only one way to declare, to name Jesus as a son of God and believe what he did for you. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that just absolutely just declares Jesus as the son of God and all the things that he did for us. And I pray that when we're singing this morning, that you would just go on and say, yes, that's true, that's true of me. Yes, that's true, that's true of me. But if it's not, I want you to know that we can talk and we can pray together and that you can leave here this morning with absolute certainty knowing that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven, and that you will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus and those who belong to him. And if you are in the fellowship of the truth. Know that you belong, that you're made for community. Embrace the Holy Spirit. Ask Him for His help throughout the day because He will teach and guide and give you wisdom and discernment and meet your need. Know the truth of who Jesus is and so that we all can stand faultless before His throne because of what Jesus did for us.